0: Hey, what's going on this is the saturday on south podcast i am connor o'gara will week zero this weekend yes you have to call it week zero not week one because why do you know the answer to this um no actually if you didn't and if you just called this week one then everybody would say during week two why are we calling this week two this should be week one <laughs>
1: That's a good point. Yeah, it's funny because my friend and Brittany both hit me up, but they're like, college football starts this weekend. Like, let's like do a grill. And so I was like, guys, I don't know how to break this to y'all, but there's like two games that we care about this weekend. Okay,
0: so we we have a fantastic show lined up. Tim Couch is going to join us in a bit. Awesome interview with an SEC legend, somebody I've wanted to have on for a long time. We're also going to discuss the Manti Teo doc on Netflix. We're going to do lad of the week. But, Will, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to provide some context for week zero. Because we need to have perspective. We really do. And it is week zero. A lot of people just simply look at it as a really bad slate to the start of the season. They, they do like what your friends are talking about, get, getting too excited, right? They, they, they get a little bit anxious and then they kind of look and realize, oh, well, no preseason top 20, preseason top 25 team is in action. It's mm. it's a really bad slate overall. And they just, they have the wrong perspective and they just look at it as, oh, this is, this is terrible. This is kind of an anticlimactic way to start the year.
1: I don't. Your perspective it's, is it's the best week of the year for Ireland. Well, shout out to Dublin. Great city. <laughs>
0: Unbelievable city. If you haven't been there, you should go. I don't necessarily know that you need to go there to watch a college football game with a, couple of teams who were combined six and 18 last year, but you should go
1: for other things. I'm actually kind of shocked. You're not watching Pat Fitzgerald and Dublin. Is that not the most Connor? <laughs> well, it'll be on, it'll be on. It, yeah. it is the
0: ultimate background noise Saturday. That's what it is. Treat it like golf tournament on a Sunday, something like that. You just kind of have it on something. gets really interesting. Then you go, uh, you, you go watch it because chances mm-hmm. are, if you're listening to this, your team is not playing. That's just the way that it works. It is extra. It's like when you're out at a restaurant, server comes by with an extra appetizer and 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 not one that you ordered, one that you didn't order. And they say to you, oh, well, it's yours if if you want it. Sure. (laughs) Look, I want week zero on my plate free of charge. And, and not just because of you know all the the Scott Frost takes that will inevitably inevitably come out of the festivities in Dublin early on Saturday. That's the most significant game of the day. And like I said, those two
1: teams six and eighteen last year. That's that's not just a Big Ten record. So that's overall six and eighteen. There's been way too much Scott Frost discourse this offseason for my liking. People are convinced Scott Frost, like, technically won 10 games or something last season.
0: (laughs) I've never seen a program get more moral victories celebrated than Scott Frost. Mm -hmm. Just very rare to see that, even in this day and age. That's how bad things have gotten at Nebraska. If you want to crown them, go ahead. That's fine. You want to watch them. Enjoy yourself. But... If you want to instead point out that Scott Frost would be an Alabama analyst right now, if his birth certificate did not read Wood River, Nebraska, you can do that as well. And I have no problem with you. That's the Connor guide to week zero. I know where our bread is buttered here. I, I'm, I'm well aware of that listeners of this show need an SEC guide to week zero. So your boy's going to provide that. Okay. That's what Let's we're going to do today. Let's start with the only SEC game. Granted, I mean, it's one of the games of the year that much we know. Vandy at Hawaii, 10 30 p.m. Eastern Time, CBS Sports Network. A huge game for Vandy's regular season over under of two and a half wins.
1: Every game is a huge
0: game. For no, no, you know no, it's not. It's not. Because this is why, Will. There are only, hmm, what's a nice way to say this? I think there are four games on that schedule that Vandy fans can go in thinking to themselves, you know what? Maybe mm-hmm. this is one of them, Georgia, no, even South Carolina, which I realized that came went down to the wire last year in Columbia and they needed Zabulia Nolan to come in and save the day. No, not this year. No. Mm-hmm. Vandy needs this one. Okay. They do got to get this one. If you're hoping to cash in on that over for the doors, you just do. And Hey, here's the good news for that. You're going to love this. Will. Hawaii essentially had about as bad an off-season as one can have without having major NCAA violations. Mm -hmm. Todd Graham, if you you didn't follow the Todd Graham story, really weird. He resigned amidst uh, player mistreatment allegations after spending just two years there. How bad was it, you ask? His own kid bolted, okay? (laughs) If you're treating people so poorly that your own kid leaves a free ride to Hawaii, you must
1: have been bad. Dad of the year. <laughs> Look, I'm taking my stuff. I'm going with Bob. I'm sick of you people. With that. Imagine leaving the beaches of Hawaii because it's so bad. Like, you're just like, you know, I, I would rather just go to some other Mac team in the middle of nowhere than deal with my dad in Hawaii.
0: <laughs> Player mistreatment stories aren't supposed to see the light of day at Hawaii. Life is supposed to be so good that you can't possibly have any other cares in the, cares in the world. Mm-hmm. But it did. And it happened. Okay, in steps, Timmy Chang, who was Colt Brennan before Colt Brennan, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Um, First time head coach gets a six win team who ranks 130 in the country out of 131 teams in percentage of returning production. The great stat that Bill Connolly always puts together. That's what happens when 18 players hit the portal in a three month stretch from November to February or November to January. Rather, it'll take Vandy. um, I'm going to say what, like 28 points to win this game. I think they got it in them. I think Vandy wins this game. I do. I don't know how I settled on twenty eight. Just sounds like a good number.
1: I don't at know the, if they at hit that, that. point. you your one thirtieth in returning production. It's almost like what's his name. Who is the one guy who's coming back? Because it's all new guys at that point. Oh, yeah. All new guys. Yeah.
0: You are uh, You you are not in, the minor, you're not in the majority if you're sitting there saying, yeah, you know, last year, this is just the way that it went. No, no, no. You're one of the, the very, very few people. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take Vandy to win. That's what everybody came here for was a Vandy prediction. I'll say that Clark Lee's defense shows up. Mike Wright makes me say on multiple occasions, he's got juice. Mm-hmm. I think Vandy wins, but Hawaii covers plus eight and a half. That's how crazy this is. Vandy is an eight and a half point favorite in a true road game. Speaking of the venue, (laughs) I know (laughs) there's more. The bigger viewing reason for this game, besides the fact that it's kind of a degenerate stream, is the stadium that they're playing in. I don't know if you've seen this. Mm Mm-mm. It has a seating capacity of 9,300 fans, which is more than double the capacity it was prior to 2020. Come on, bro. It's in the midst of a renovation, which will expand the capacity to wait for it, 17,000 fans. Why do they have to play there? You ask. I know what you're thinking. They had to play there because their usual stadium, Aloha stadium, great stadium name for Hawaii. Wouldn't expect Mm -hmm. anything but that they had major issues late in 2020 with the pandemic because they couldn't afford kind of the day-to-day upkeep without, and then without events, they couldn't necessarily fund all of the workers that it takes to be able to maintain that a stadium that was already kind of in rough shape. They need some serious TLC to actually be able to have events there. So that's why they're like three years. No, we need to like take three years off and then make sure that we get money Back coming in to make sure that this stadium is up and running and able to host college football
1: games. So, Aloha Stadium is essentially getting repoed. And now we're in the the Aloha offsite stadium, which is under renovation. Yes.
0: And that capacity of 9,300, will
1: it sell out? Come on, bro. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you who's got to be hot Hawaii's (laughs) doters. Because they're paying for all this stuff amid the Todd Graham thing. And, wow. Just pour one out for for those fine people.
0: I hope Hawaii's tourism is doing just fine for a while there. I know everybody was going to Hawaii during the pandemic, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that if that's continued, how their tourism has been doing, but they, they need the funds coming in right now with what they're dealing with uh, with their stadium. Mm-hmm. The aforementioned Nebraska-Northwestern game in Dublin has some SEC angles to it. Uh, Longtime LSU receivers coach, Mickey Joseph, he took that same position at his alma mater, Nebraska, which happened after several poaching attempts. So if LSU fans want their receivers coach back, Scott Frost getting fired, starting off by losing a game as a two-touchdown favorite, that would probably expedite that process a little bit. Joseph brought LSU receiver Trey Palmer with him after he never really kind of turned into that go-to guy three years at Mm -hmm. LSU on the other side of the ball the northwestern side of the ball ryan halinski
2: that's yes. right
0: <laughs> he's back yes Yes, the same former true freshman quarterback starter at South Carolina is expected to maybe probably be the starter. I say that because Pat Fitzgerald refuses to publicly name a starter. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. When they something more
1: fat, Pat Fitzgerald than not publicly naming a starter.
2: It's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> These coaches who have terrible offenses who are convinced that, oh my gosh, things will actually change if we keep everything under wraps and nobody knows our starting quarterback. Same thing I talked about with Indy. Indiana. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it's, I mean, Northwestern, the passing game was 110 in the country last year. They were 120, they were ranked 122nd in FBS and yards per attempt. So, not hiding the world's secrets if you let us know who's going to be your starting quarterback, but you do you. Whatever, that's fine. For those of you who are like, ah, oh, whatever happened to Ryan Holinski? Did he just get must champed out of college football? Nope. He's maybe starting for Northwestern, entering year four. He actually still has another year of eligibility left. After this one. So he's well on his way to following in Jake Bentley's footsteps. Speaking of Jake Bentley. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, His playing career is finally over. His coaching career is just beginning. Grad assistant at FAU. They are playing in week zero against Charlotte Saturday afternoon. Highly doubt that you'll hear much on the broadcast about a grad assistant. The only SEC connection besides that one Is uh, Charlotte plays at South Carolina in week four. So Gamecock fans, do some early scouting. Pretend like you know something about Charlotte. Talk to your friends about why Will Healy is going to get a a big job really soon. I don't know. Sounds smart, but there's your viewing guide for that one. Elsewhere, Florida fans, do you want some sickos committee-like viewing? Always. I'll be a Florida fan for a day if it means I get that. And, well, I mean, you as an LSU fan who you know has a week one interest in Florida State, obviously, like you would you would watch a week zero game potentially involving the Seminoles. I don't think that Florida State will lose to a seven win FCS team like Duquesne. I don't think. That's how you say it, right, Duquesne? I think so. Uh, sure. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Yeah, I think yeah, that's right. I think it's definitely not spelled like that. Uh, would I bet my life on them winning that game? No, I just wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. After all, Seminoles lost the best part of their team, Jermaine Johnson, who transferred, of course, from Georgia and then tore it up during his one season in Tallahassee. And we mustn't forget that last year, FSU lost to FCS Jacksonville State. So who knows? Maybe they'll
1: do something like that again. See what I did there? you like that? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, Jackson, by the way. I think a lot of people came away from that game with the take that they lost to Deion Sanders. That is Jacksonville, Alabama, not Jackson State. Yes. Worse than you were thinking, if you didn't think that already. <laughs> yes, very bad. Jacksonville State's Week
0: Zero game isn't on TV, to my knowledge, and I'm not sure if there's some live stream of it somewhere. But if you can get access to it, I highly recommend it. Why, you ask? Because Rich Rod is now their coach, and he accused Stephen F. Austin of having spies at their practice. Incredible story. If you have not seen this, Rich Rod said that they thought Stephen F. Austin spied on the Jacksonville State spring game, and then they caught someone the other day at one of their practices. Rich Rod set the biggest guy in the program to go to the be- go to the bleachers, and according to Rich Rod, that guy left pretty quickly. Unbelievable! I miss Rich Rod in the SEC <laughs> so much, so much.
2: His Connor, have you seen? Oh, <sighs> have
1: you seen Shorzy? I have not. I'm scared. Oh my gosh! You would love Shorzy. It's if you ever heard of Letterkenny. Well, we're speaking different languages right now. It's, it's like a Canadian version of The Office almost, where it's these hicks. Oh, you would love it, I promise. But one of them is what the new show is about their hockey team. And it's just very like podunk, middle of nowhere, like the janitors, the coach, and all this different stuff. That is straight out of, out of Shorezy where it's just like, well, get the GA up there. Go rough him up. Get him out of here. You he might be spying. Yeah, that's,
0: uh, that's probably what Rich Rod did. I mean, those like verbatim those were his exact words he's been running offenses for a quarter century and he's all worried about what Stephen f austin is doing to gain an advantage (laughs) it's unbelievable but we're talking about the viewing guide and i'm guessing if anything of relevance happens from that game it'll go viral is it too much to ask for a rich rod headbutt instead of a post-game handshake i don't think so i think we could wish that into existence i don't know elsewhere
1: love this
0: Tyson Helton, who led a pretty bad Tennessee offense in 2018, he's entering year four at Western Kentucky, is probably like one more year away from getting serious power five job interest. after Bailey Zappi threw for like 9 million yards last year. Zappi's gone, but if you like watching teams throw the ball all over the place, they play Austin P. in what's the first FBS college football game of 2022. That's at noon on CBS Sports Network. If nothing else, just practice finding that channel because trust me, you're not going to want to be fumbling around at 1030 when Vandy and why are set to kick off what else wyoming is at illinois if you miss having an excuse to watch brett bielema find someone with the login to be able to get big 10 network make that happen still weird kind of seeing bert not in a shade of red not used mm-hmm. to that eyes have not adjusted i don't think he's really an orange guy but that's okay just happy that he's back it looks like one of those traffic barrels, or is not his color, probably. <laughs> nah, he's a, he does wear a lot of blue more so. I have noticed that because I'm like, ah, is he gonna be doing going full Dabo orange jumpsuit? No, I don't think so. He's mostly he's, he rocks the navy, the whites. He kind of wears some of the the off colors, not so much the bold, full orange outfits. He's not going for that. Mm-hmm. UConn at Utah State. Bama fans, little preview for next week with Utah State coming to town. People forget they finished in the AP top 25 last year. Saban's probably going to tell his team that, oh, oh, hey, they finished in the top 25, okay? He's going to have them watch this game wherein they're a four-touchdown favorite just so that he can say, look, they can beat you guys, all right? All right? He's going to say that. Also of note, uh, Utah State, 113th in the country in percentage of returning production. Probably going to take a step back year to Blake Anderson there. Anything else? Yes. Yes, there is. At 8.15 p.m. Eastern time, Gene Chizik will make his long-awaited return to coaching, and I could not be more excited. I am so fired up for him. I need to set a reminder to text him, by the way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Will Florida A&M score a point against UNC? No so no and the boys
1: are going to be juiced up. They're going to be ready to go
0: for old Gene. They, they will play it hard. They will. If you're saying to yourself on Saturday night before Vandy at Hawaii, hey, it'd be really fun to go watch something that reminds me of the '85 Bears.
1: ACC Network, eight fifteen p.m. Eastern time. Book mm-hmm. okay. it. You know, the worst part of all this is neither of us have a gambling interest in any of this. We're just true sickos. <laughs> we're in it for the love of the game. It would almost be healthier if we were putting money on these games. I think it might, it might take up
0: gambling, <laughs> looking at this slate. But it's week zero. It's the free appetizer at your table. Just take it. Just take it. Eat it. You didn't order potato skins. Doesn't matter. Just eat them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Ask him to bring some sour cream in. All right. Don't complain. Just take it, move on. Uh, Doesn't matter. I I, I hope I converted some of these week zero sucks people. Just enjoy your free appetizer. Wait patiently for your entree. Okay,
1: that's it. That's all you got to do. Let's kick it to Tim Couch. Hold on, I just wanted to really quickly say something. Going all the way back to the top of the slate, you were talking about. uh, (laughs) You waited fifteen minutes. Well, you know, you were going, bro. You were. not want to stop that that flow. That That was a lot. Going back to Mickey Joseph, uh, I think he's made an all-time great career move by waiting in, like, for Scott Frost to get fired. And he also played at Nebraska, so we can go in and maybe audition for that job. I'm not as worried about or concerned about Trey Palmer leaving, but he did sweep up my sweet baby son, DeColdis to ever do it Crawford from the state of Louisiana. And sadly, he is now in Nebraska. Uh, but he has his NIL deal. Have you seen DeColdis' NIL deal? The, the best
0: NIL commercial to date so far was from DeColdis Crawford, Yes, it was exactly what I hoped NIL could be. And there needs to be more people taking advantage of people with epic
1: names like him. So when the Scott Frost thing explodes, come on home to coldest. Even in that deal, he said, I'm from Louisiana. We miss you, son. Oh, yeah, he did say that, didn't he? (laughs) It was like a knife in my heart. I just I wanted him so bad. That's a rental. That's a rental. (laughs) Yeah, coming back.
0: Yeah, I bet they will. Okay. Yeah, that covers it. Week zero. There's your viewing guide. Share it with your friends. Tell them week week zero is is actually just fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just found a bunch of reasons for you. Probably left a few out. Although I searched
1: far and wide for plenty. <laughs> <30-20. laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, let's kick it to Tim Couch. Uh, Like I said before, uh, somebody I really wanted to have on for, for a long time, was glad we were able to make it work. We talked a little bit of Levis, some Leach, obviously a bunch of stories from his career. So here is Tim Couch. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Kentucky legend, former number one overall pick, Tim Couch. Tim, the majority of the people who hear this interview will just be listening to this so they they can't see you. Uh, and, and I'm sure you get this all the time, but good Lord, man. Um, you're jacked. You're absolutely <laughs> jacked out. When, so I didn't really realize this until you went fishing with my guy, Cash Daniel. And I saw the side-by-side of you two. And look, I, I've, I've hung out with Cash a few times to know that we're a different species. So when someone looks like that next to him, I'm like, Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> yeah, what's the, the
2: big boy. <laughs> yeah. So, what's the fitness routine like for you now? Uh, it's just daily, man. You know, I've always been into uh, into health and fitness and nutrition and all that stuff. Even going back to my playing days, it's just, uh, you know, as a quarterback, I didn't want to train the way I train now because I didn't want to get too tight in my shoulders and chest and things like that. Just uh, I thought it restricted me from throwing the ball a little bit. So I kind of changed up my workout routine a little bit. But I'm in there every day, um, pro- probably five days a week on weights, a couple days a week uh, cardio. And then I'm very active as well. I'm always on the golf course or or doing something. I, I don't sit still very well. So I'm always active and moving around. And and uh, you know just trying just trying to stay fit and feel good, man. Just so I can you know my my body went through a lot in the NFL and college. So just uh, just just trying to stay where I can feel good and play golf and and feel good every day when I get up.
0: Yeah, I don't know how else to say this, but your arms are like the size of my legs. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> huge, man. Um, a lot of people are listening to this right now going, oh, I need to do a Google search to Tim Couch. Definitely do it. Uh, it's, it's worth your time. Uh, so I, I know you can still probably lift as well, if not better than, than you ever did. But how far is a 45-year-old Tim
2: Couch able to throw football? You know, I don't even know honestly because I don't throw it very far. Just my kids in the backyard. Uh, so, the, so that's about as the extent of my uh, football throwing has been over about the last ten years. So I haven't thrown anything serious or anything like that. But I can still throw it though. There, there's no question. I still got some got some zip to it. Uh, but I, I can probably only do that for like you know a few throws because I've had two major shoulder surgeries on that uh, throwing shoulder. Uh, so it, it doesn't hold up very well. But there's still a little juice left in there for a few throws. You had
0: those shoulder surgeries like really early on too, right? That wasn't like a like a late,
2: late development. That was pretty early in your career, wasn't it? Uh, it was actually uh, after I left Cleveland uh, when okay. I went to Green Bay. I had my first surgery there. Uh, then I got healthy from that. And then I was going to try and come back um, and do, be a backup somewhere for a year, just, just to take a year to get healthy. And um, was going to end up signing with the Colts and uh, back up Peyton for a year. Had a good workout with them. And they put me on the um, – Uh, The MRI, my shoulder again, just to see if it was structurally sound after the surgery, they found another tear in there. So I was on the operating table once again and had a second uh, rotator cuff surgery. And I was just really never the same after that. That would have been awesome to back up
0: Peyton. I always thought that would be such a fun experience, given kind of where your careers kind of coincided in the SEC. And, you know, it it would have been kind of a fascinating chapter for you to be able to close with by being able to play with Peyton. That's got to be one of those things you look back and you're like, man, that would have have just been a, a different kind of experience than what you dealt with in Cleveland, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, it would have been a great opportunity for me to learn from one of the best. And, uh, you know, I was really familiar with their system as well. Bruce Arians was Peyton's quarterback coach before he came to Cleveland and was my offensive coordinator. So I was really familiar with what what they were doing offensively. So it would have been a great fit. Um, You know, unfortunately, I couldn't stay healthy, but I got to play with Brett Favre for a year when I was in Green Bay. Uh, So that was a cool experience, too, just getting to see how Brett does it. And you know, he was late in his career at that point, but he was still, you know, playing at a super high level. And, uh, you know, it was just, just really fun to watch how he goes about his. Business and you know the meeting rooms and how you control everything and uh, just just to you know just to see one of the legends do it like that was a pretty cool experience. I got a lot of stuff I want to get to with you.
0: Uh, let's start with this current Kentucky team and specifically your relationship with Will Levis. Uh, tell me the story of when you kind of got to know him and, and why you guys have been able to hit it
2: off the way you have. Yeah, when he first got to Kentucky, uh, when he came from Penn State, I just sent him a message on social media, just welcoming, uh, welcoming him to Kentucky and just told him if there's anything I can do for him here in Lexington to, you know, please reach out, let me know. Uh, you know, I just, um, you know, saw his videos online. Obviously, the throwing, uh, you know, the, the passes where the arm strength is just off the charts. And it just, you know, it just kind of shocks you, shocked you at how strong his arm is at times. So I knew he was going to be a good player and this would be a good fit for him. So I wanted to develop a relationship with him right away. And, you know, the way he just got to campus and uh, just kind of took over, um, you know, this program, he was kind of the leader from day one, uh, stepping on campus here. He he, he won that job uh, pretty quickly and had, had a great year last year. So uh, we've gotten to be really good friends. Uh, through the process you know just um, staying in touch on uh, you know text messages we've been able to go out and play golf before uh, this summer so that so that was really good getting a chance to know him a little bit um but uh, you know other than that it's just some encouraging words here and there and you know just bouncing some ideas off each other things like that but he's he's an he's an awesome guy a great leader and uh, he's going to have a, a big time season for kentucky this year i think it's getting that first round buzz Everybody kind of wants a piece of them.
0: You remember what that was like and coming back and knowing, okay, you got a lot to live up to and everybody's kind of talking about you. What what have you shared with him about the the process based on your experience going through that?
2: Yeah, you know he's getting a lot of that right now. He got so much hype this off season, and uh, you know the NFL scouts really like him a lot. Uh, yeah, I think he had an opportunity for a throw for some of those guys at pro day here last year, so they got to see his arm up close, and and uh, and it's uh, it's something that uh, that you just don't see every day. You know he's the ball comes out of his hand a little bit differently than you normally see uh, from a college quarterback, and it's pretty special to see. So uh, re- really, I just told him, you know, just um, you know enjoy the process. You know, don't read in too much whether they're talking good about you or bad about you. Uh, just go out and do the work. You know he's uh, he he's a worker. He's um you know he's probably one of the hardest workers they have on the team, which is a great thing when one of your best players is one of your hardest workers as well. So he sets an example for those guys, and he's doing all the right things and saying all the right things. And uh, I've I've been over to watch him practice a couple times this off and just just him throwing with the guys. You know, no coaches out there, just him and a few wide receivers out there, and uh, he takes control of that situation and runs those uh, those practices. And so it's really good to see a guy. Um, you know, like I said, so new to this university, just be able to step up and accept that leadership role right away. And he, he does a fantastic job. And those guys really believe in Will and they follow Will. And, um, you know, I just can't wait to see what he does here in year two. I think it's just so great for the program too, to
0: to have a guy. I mean, Kentucky has struggled to just have that that starting quarterback really for the last 15 years i mean probably probably about 14 years where it's felt like man they just kind of go through from one guy to the next and it, it really does make a difference when you feel like all right this this guy could be one of the 10 best in all of college football and it wouldn't necessarily be stunning to see that what's the biggest thing that you think he needs to be able to improve on to kind of live up to that that first round buzz what's the thing that he can accomplish this year to be what everybody's been talking about this offseason
2: yeah, you know, I think I think the thing for Will is just to improve a little bit on decision-making. You know, last year was really his first year starting. You know, he played a little bit at Penn State, but, you know, this last year was the first year he was actually the guy uh, week in and week out, and, you know, the system kind of ran through him. And, and he makes, he forced the ball a few times. I'm sure he would tell you that. He, he forced the ball into some tough situations uh, early on in the season. Uh, but as the season went on, I saw him starting to get really um, comfortable within the offense, making better reads, getting rid of the football quicker. Uh, so, so it's those little things, you know, just decision-making, a little more consistent consistency with the accuracy. Uh, things like that, that that you know any quarterback can improve on. You're always working to improve those things, uh, but he has such a a, a large physical skill set with the, his ability not only to throw the football, but his ability to run the ball as well. If you remember going back to the last game against Louisville last year, he had four touchdowns on the ground in that game, so uh, he, he's a super athletic guy on top of having a really strong arm, so he's got all the physical tools you want. You just kind of want to see him polish that up a little bit and, and make a little bit better decisions here and there and take care of the football a little better and if he can do that, man, the sky's the limit. It for him,
0: gotta ask about the video I watched on KSR the ultimate Kentucky high school football showdown 1995. You versus Chris <laughs> Stapleton, yeah, Did, had no idea that exists. You threw four picks in the game, but I mean, yeah, you I also guess. had the game winning touchdowns. So like, right. like uh, yeah, that
2: was, I think that was easily my worst game I ever played in high school, for sure. Was it really? I mean, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no question. Uh but we we uh we found a way to win it, but you know, obviously, you know, going back to that game, I had no idea that Chris Stapleton was out there. I didn't know that I'd played against him until you know, probably just a couple of years ago, somebody brought it to my attention that we had played against each other. And, you know, I'm a big Chris Stapleton fan now I was actually at his concert. He played uh, at Kroger Field here uh, a few months ago and, and put on a great show. So I was at his concert and, uh, you know, but it was pretty cool to see that video going back. And he actually sacked me a couple of times, yeah. you know, in that game. And uh, but it was pretty cool to see him out there. It was, it was pretty neat.
0: I was going to ask if you had been able to like continue a relationship with him. That's the easiest icebreaker ever. Like, Hey, remember, remember yeah. you know, like 27 years ago, you sacked me pretty good. We played in that unbelievable yeah. game. You'd be like, you're Tim couch. That's right. Of course. Like he probably tracked you more than you tracked him, which is a crazy thing to think about.
2: Yeah, you know, probably so at that point. You know, I think, you know, before he made it in, in Nashville, you know, he was probably just, uh, you know, just a football fan, a UK fan. And, uh, you know, obviously we played against each other. So he was probably, you know, tracking the career a little bit. But, uh, you know, I'm certainly tracking his now. And he, he's uh, he's one of the biggest names in country music and uh, just more than happy for him for his all success and uh, hoping hope can keep it going. Kentucky wasn't running the air raid
0: when you first got there, which it's kind of amazing to think that you ended up there. I know you're the in-state kid and you've always wanted to go to Kentucky. You're an Eastern Kentucky kid. Mm-hmm. But with, even with that being your high school offense, you all of a sudden get this coaching change, right? Where Mike Leach, Hal Mumme, they come in there, they're – okay, we're running the air raid. This is this is the system. Looking back, it looked like that hire was made with you in mind to kind of maximize your skill set instead of running the option, which did not really make a lot of sense for what you were trying to do. Uh, what was your first impression of Leach? Because now everybody knows how unique he is. But back then, I got to imagine a guy who probably didn't know a whole lot about him. You're thinking to yourself, who in the world is this guy?
2: Yeah, that's exactly the way it was. And, you know, it was My freshman year, going back, you know, Bill Curry was the head coach here, and he had me running the option, which was crazy because, you know, coming out of high school, I had just set every national high school passing record in the history of high school football with yards and touchdowns, completion percentage, everything, and he gets me to Kentucky and wants me to run the option, so I didn't understand uh, the thought process on that. So I was actually going to transfer uh, at the end of that year. And uh, CM Newton, our athletic director, came to me and said, listen, if you'll just go through this process with us before you decide to transfer, let's just I want to show you the coach that we're going to bring in. And, you know, if you decide to stay, you decide to stay. If not, then, you know, at least you went through the process and you can feel better about it. So I said, sure, you know, I'll go through the process with you. So uh, a week or two, whatever it was later, they he comes in and says, I got a guy, his name's Hal Mummy." And he's from Valdosta State. And I was like, I'd never heard of Hal Mummy. I'd never heard of Valdosta State. I had no idea who this guy was. So uh, my first meeting with Hal, I walk into his office and he says, he literally said first thing, he goes, you're my starting quarterback and we're going to throw it 50 times a game. How's that sound? (laughs) I'm like, All right. I think I'm going to reconsider transfer at this point, but uh, yeah, Mike, um, Mike Mike was just brand new. You know, he had never really called plays at that point. Uh, Hal was calling all the plays. So uh, Mike, Mike was, um, he was an interesting guy. You know, the first time I met him, he was talking about everything except football. You know, he wanted to talk about pirates and wars and all this history stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm just like, man, I just want to learn the offense. Like, I just want to get, uh, get a playbook and get going. But uh, he he was an interesting guy, but you learn pretty quickly how intelligent he is and how, uh, how smart he is about putting guys in position to make plays. And he's just gotten better and better uh, as he left Kentucky and went to Oklahoma and then Texas Tech and then Washington State. And now he's back in the SEC at Mississippi State. He's he's done a phenomenal job wherever he's been. And it was it was cool to be with those guys as they first broke into in major college football.
0: OK, got to ask, where would you have gone if you had transferred after that that
2: freshman year? I was actually going to Tennessee. I'd originally committed to Tennessee, um, so I was, uh, you know, I grew up closer to Knoxville, Tennessee, than I did to Lexington, where I grew up in Eastern Kentucky. So uh, I'd always kind of, you know, Kentucky football was pretty bad back then. Man, the the year that I'd signed with Kentucky, I think they won one game that year. Um, and you know, and I was the number one recruit in the country. Had a chance to go everywhere, so no one could kind of figure out why why I wanted to go to Kentucky. My 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 dad actually played a played a heavy role in that decision of of wanting me to go to Kentucky. So, um, but, but I, I'd originally committed to Tennessee and, you know, Peyton was there. So I would have been a couple of years behind him would have had a chance to redshirt, sit and learn a little bit. So, so that would have been a cool experience and Peyton and I had become pretty good friends at that point, you know, just through, you know, going to these uh, camps together when we were in high school and I'd been visiting Tennessee a lot and Peyton would show me around and hanging out with him in the meeting rooms and all that kind of stuff. So I had to develop a relationship with him and felt really comfortable at Tennessee. So I was, I was going to end up going back. Uh, just go ahead and transfer to Tennessee but thankfully I didn't because it all worked out uh, the way it was supposed to here at Kentucky for me
0: it worked out pretty well for Tennessee to win a national championship in 1998 but man what a thought that is if you were placing Peyton at Tennessee that would have been incredible to to watch that transformation who knows how that impacts the trajectory of their program going into 2000s all those different things Um, the the air rate itself you said there was no playbook the playbook is five to seven plays on your wristband you get up to the line of scrimmage And you essentially break down the coverage, which like, you you know, you're throwing it. So you don't necessarily have to worry about that. It's just a matter of kind of when and where, what those routes are. Leech and put a lot of faith in you by by doing that. And that's kind of the the underrated thing about the air raid. But it's more about faith in, in the system that they've drawn up the right concepts to be able to work, to be able to spread teams out, take those mismatches and recognize what they are. Tons of teams operate like that now in their own unique way not exactly throwing it 50 times a game. Did you know what you were doing at the time was revolutionary and that 20 years from now we'd be talking about all these different teams with air raid concepts?
2: No, I really didn't. And, you know, actually, I felt the exact opposite way because, you know, like I said, there was no playbook or anything. I remember my first uh, uh, Chris Hatcher, who's uh, the head coach at Sanford now, um, he, he was uh, my quarterback coach at the time. He had played for Hal at Valdosta State. He was a really good quarterback at Valdosta State. So he when he first got to, got to town, I called him up and I was like, listen, man, I want to get a jump start on the playbook and you meet me for lunch. I uh, just uh, I just want to start talking about you know the the concepts and the terminology and all this kind of stuff you know that I wanted to get get started on uh, before the team came in for the meetings and stuff and he said I'll tell you what Deuce he said meet me at Hooters and let's grab lunch so we get to Hooters and we sit down. And he goes, uh, he goes, Well, here's the deal. He said, We don't have a playbook. So he takes these napkins at Hooters and he starts drawing the air raid up on these <laughs> Hooters napkins. And that's how I learned it. That's how I first started learning about the air raid. So he drew up like the, the base core plays and and uh, you know formations and things like that. So we we really, like you said, it's not very complicated as far as the passing game goes. There's only, I don't know, I can't remember now, maybe 10-15 pass plays, but there it was coming out of a lot of different formations and personnel grouping. So to the defense, it looked like we were running all these plays and it was so complicated. But to us, we're just running the same plays out of a three by one, out of a two by two, or whatever, out of empty, what, whatever the situation may be. We're just running the same routes. But to them, it looks very complicated. And we had a lot of shifts and motions in there as well to kind of dress it up a little bit. But uh, it was super easy to learn. You know, I think when these air raid coaches go to these programs, uh, they'll tell you that it's pretty easy for them to install uh, the system. You know, it only takes, you know, whatever, a few days, a week or whatever, and they, they've got the system installed. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that was uh, that was kind of my introduction to the Air Raid with no playbook. And so I'm thinking, but you know, like I said, I had no idea that, you know, it would still be like so prevalent in college football. And now it's even made its way to the NFL with Cliff Kingsbury, who played for Mike Leach at Texas Tech, who's the head coach now in the NFL. So and a lot, a lot of air raid quarterbacks with have success in the NFL with, you know, I played in a college, Baker Mayfield, Patrick Mahomes, Jared Goff, all these guys that were air raid guys in college that are having so much success in the NFL now. So it's really cool to see that, uh, you know, we were kind of on the ground floor of, you know, breaking that system into major college football and, and where it is today. I'm just picturing you
0: showing up to that first practice, like taking out Hooters napkins from your back pocket or something like that. being like, oh,
2: I got to figure out these plays. That's so pretty much the way it was. I really did take the napkins back to my dorm room, and I got them <laughs> spread out on the table. And I'm like, okay, so this, this, this. So I'm trying to, you know, basically kind of piece together a little playbook out of that, out of those Hooters napkins and, and kind of get started with it that way. Incredible.
0: Uh, the 97 BAM game. You it in an overtime, first Kentucky win against Bama since 1922, pure pandemonium in Lexington. Great clip. Go back and watch it, uh, especially Kentucky fans, maybe not Bama fans, but just seeing the scene there
2: that night looked uh, amazing. W- what's a story from that night that you'll never forget? You know, the thing I remember about that night or leading up to that game is we felt so confident all week long that we were going to win that game. We had them at home and we felt like we were a pretty good team. Um, And I don't know why we felt so confident, because like you said, Kentucky hadn't beaten Alabama in 75 years at that point. But we just felt like it was going to be our night. And so kind of no matter what happened throughout that game, because there was a lot of ups and downs and back and forth in that game, uh, we just stayed confident and we kind of thought we were going to win. So finally, the game uh, gets to overtime, and we just knew we are going to win it. We're going to find a way to win this game in overtime. And and fortunately, I was able to hit uh, Craig Yeast uh, on a third down play, and he breaks the tackle and goes into the end zone. And I just remember as soon as he crossed the goal line, man, I looked up, and the entire stadium is coming down on the field. And it was just like – It was like one of those things you live for as a college quarterback. I mean, what what other you know, what what could be better than a college quarterback beating Alabama on a game winning touchdown pass in overtime? Like you can't write a better script than that. And then, you know, the fans rush the field. They're tearing the goalposts down. And it was just it was one of those nights, man, I'll never forget. And um, it it was such a cool experience for me and my teammates and the coaches. And it was just uh, it was awesome. I was glad to be, uh, be able to be a part of that. One of the things that I find absolutely ridiculous, you know where I'm going with this because we've talked about this a little bit before
0: uh, Before this, but um, you're somehow not in the College Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, I don't get it. You cannot tell the story of college football without Tim Couch and without that air raid offense in the late 90s. I, I wrote about this a little while ago. And, and to be frank, it's a joke that some of the guys have gotten ahead of you. I mean, even, you know, Kerry Collins, Gino, Toretto, those are the two that I kind of brought up and I compared you in the story because relatively same era, you both had two full seasons as a starter and it's not even close when you, when you do the statistical breakdown, you can look at the efficiency, all that stuff. It doesn't really help them. They get so much of the benefit of the doubt because of the QB wins thing, which is just BS because it also just totally negates the fact they played with elite defenses and you never played with the top 90 defense. Have you ever gotten any sort of explanation from anybody of importance involved in the process as to why you have not been in there yet? Or is it as simple as we get the air raid asterisk and that's just kind of what we deal with?
2: No, I, I haven't. And, you know, I really appreciate you writing that article. I thought it was uh, it was very informative and it's just, it's just been, it's a long process. You know, I think that um, it's a tough thing to break into. I've been on the finals, finalist list for, I don't know, eight, nine years now, 2014. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, um, I've just kind of quit thinking about it at this point because the first few years I was so excited to kind of get that call and hopefully get in and it just gets disappointing every year and, and year so um, at this point I'm just like hey if it happens it happens if it doesn't then uh, then whatever but uh, you know I think if you look at my stats and the impact on college football uh, that I had uh, in those two years that I was at Kentucky I think it's, um, it's certainly worthy of, of, of being in but you know I think it will happen it's just you know um, you know the, the, the uh, SID at Kentucky here he told me when I got uh, nominated that it was going to be a long process. He said, don't expect to go in year one or year two. And of course, I expected to go in year one or year two, but it, it just didn't happen. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, within the next few years I can get in because it would be just a, a tremendous honor. You know, I mean, there's been so many great players play college football and, you know, there's a lot of great players on the list every year with me that I see that that don't get in and you know, they're still waiting to get in. So I don't feel too bad about it because of the guys on that list with me. There's been some, you know, unbelievable players that, uh, you know, went on to have have uh, great college careers, but NFL careers as well that aren't in yet either. So hopefully it'll happen soon. And uh, it would be a big deal for me and my family and for the university. And uh, it, it'd be a tremendous honor. One of the, one of the highest I've ever received for sure.
0: I did a 180 on your NFL career. I'll, I'll admit it. I, you know, I was one of those people that was just like, all right, yeah, former number one overall pick. You didn't necessarily live up to the hype. And the way that you get labeled to me now, looking back kind on of it, looking closer is, is unfair. I, I wrote about the biggest NFL bust that the sec has ever had But by the time I finished the column, I'm like, wait a minute, you don't belong in that group because right. the numbers were better than people probably care to remember. And for a while you held that very rare distinction of leading the Browns to their only playoff berth in the 21st century. They've since gone back, but you know, you broke your leg the last regular season game 2002. So you didn't necessarily even get to play in, in that playoff game. And your, your OC Bruce Arians, who you brought up earlier, he told Peter King a few years back that you were the most misunderstood player that he ever coached. Do you think your NFL career and just you in general that you were misunderstood in your, your NFL legacy?
2: Yeah, you know, I really think that, you know, just uh, having that experience of playing in the NFL for six years and uh, just seeing guys and around the league, you know, it really does come down to right time, right place, especially for quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, I mean, I've seen really good players on really bad teams that, you know, you just kind of get forgotten, you know, that, uh, you know, because they, they weren't winning Super Bowls and they weren't going to the playoffs year in and year out. They weren't going to Pro Bowls, but these are good football players, really good players. Um, and then vice versa, you know, there's guys that I thought that weren't that great that were on really good teams that were winning games and getting all the accolades and things so, so it's just right time right place and so much has to go right for you in the NFL to have success you know number one you got to stay healthy obviously and then you got to have a coaching staff that um is going to put in the right system around you and you got to have the offensive line and the running game the wide receivers the defense to back you up so you got really got to have all the pieces in place to to be a successful quarterback in the NFL over a long period of time and certainly I had my moments where You know, I was, you know, kind of trending upwards and and kind of climbing and, and felt like I was, you know, becoming a pretty good NFL quarterback and then an injury would set me back and, you know, things like that. So it was just kind of an up and down thing. And I had so many injuries with, you know, two shoulder surgeries. I had a broken thumb one year, a broken foot, a broken leg, multiple concussions. I mean it was just uh it was just you know every year something would happen I think I only made it through one season uh where I started every game um because you know the injury would take me out of a game or two here and there every year so it was it was frustrating and uh, and then we were an expansion team you know that was the biggest thing uh when I came into the league in 99 the browns were an expansion team so starting literally from the ground up with that uh, franchise was very difficult I think I got sacked the most times in the history of the NFL my rookie year I think it was 56 50, uh, yeah I mean it was just um I got I got beat up pretty bad. And that takes a toll on you, not only physically, but mentally as well, when you're getting sacked that many times and not winning games on top of it. So uh, it definitely affected me mentally, uh, my confidence and things like that. But then I kind of bounced back and, you know, we got the team to the playoffs in my fourth season. So I uh, certainly was really proud of that from where we started with that organization in 99 to where we were four years later. And then, like you said, I broke my leg in the last game of the year against the Falcons. We had to win to get in the playoffs, so I didn't get to play in the playoff game. And at that point, you know, things just kind of went south for me. You know, I mean, I was uh, the fifth year there with the Browns. After the playoff season, which I thought was, you know, obviously I would be the guy going back into, you know, that that next season coming off my injury, but it uh, was kind of back and forth with Kelly Holcomb, where Kelly would start a couple games, I would come in and start a couple games, and we were both miserable to be honest We We just which uh, we just wanted Coach uh, Butch Davis to make a decision, like pick a guy and stick with him, man, because it's back and forth. No quarterback can play in that situation. You feel like every time you make a bad throw, you're coming out of the game, and it's just just too much pressure to play like that. So. Uh, it, got, it got frustrating at that point, and uh, just you know, I just kind of wanted out, and both me and the team wanted to go in different ways, and I ended up going to Green Bay.
0: Yeah, Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper, those are the two guys everybody brings up in your draft classes. Oh, they had all this success. They were drafted after you. Therefore, it's an indictment in you. And it's like, well, if those guys have gone to Cleveland, I don't know that that 56
2: sack number is really getting a whole lot better. I, I don't. Yeah, I mean- I would have liked to fallen in the draft where Dante did and had Randy Moss and Chris Carter and Robert right. Smith to play with. You know, that would, I would I would have taken that uh, that trade any day of the week. But you know, those guys were excellent football players. Not taking anything away from them, but they were uh, in a, in a really good situation. Obviously, Donovan McNabb had Andy Reid, who we now know is one of the best play callers in in maybe the history of the NFL. You know, I mean, wherever he goes, his quarterbacks have success. So so those guys fell into really good situations and uh, no ill feelings towards them. And like I said, I think they're both great players. And uh, you know, just wish it would have worked out a little better for me as far as you know where i ended up and in, in, in the situation around me was there a moment when you realized that you weren't
0: necessarily going to have the nfl career that you would hope for
2: not really until uh probably when i got to green bay and i remember thinking um you know at that point I was the number one pick in the draft, you know, just six years ago, man. And I I had just taken a team to the playoffs a couple of years ago and I'm sitting in green Bay and I'm back. I'm a backup quarterback at this point, you know, I'm backing up. And not only, I mean, I was backing up Brett Favre and that was, um, you know, a huge honor to be on the same field and, and be Brett's backup. But, you know, that I thought I, I should have been a starter somewhere in the league, you know, so at that point, I really got down uh, mentally, like it really took a toll on me. I'm like, this is not where I'm supposed to be in year six of my career. You know, I really thought I thought I was going to play for 15 years with the Browns, you know, I really thought I'd be there for my entire career. Um, and you know, it obviously just didn't work out that way with the injuries and, you know, the ups and the downs and the things like that. But, um, I just got to a pretty dark place when I was in green Bay. And then you throw in a shoulder surgery on top of that. I got hurt as soon as I got there and I ended up having, um, had a torn labrum, a torn rotator cuff. And then my bicep had detached from the shoulder. Uh, so they had to repair that as well. So they really, uh, Dr. Andrews did my surgery down in Birmingham and he, he repaired my whole shoulder, like structurally, uh, it was just, you know, it was uh, a total reconstruction of my shoulder. So uh, I never felt the same after that first surgery, but I was really pushing to get back. And I think I pushed it a little too quickly to kind of get back out on the field. And Like I said, I was going to sign with Indianapolis and they found a tear in my rotator cuff again. So I was on the operating table. And then the second after the second surgery, it was it was over for me. I knew at that point that I was never going to be the same player. I just didn't have the same velocity on my throws. The ball wasn't com- coming out of my hand the way it used to. I just didn't feel like myself. So I knew I knew at that point it was over for me. Did that kind of give you peace, though, in a way? I mean, being in a low place in Green
0: Bay when you're thinking this isn't where I'm supposed to be and this kind of angst that you feel, did mm-hmm. did did a darkness set in during that time or did, was it kind of like, all right, I can move on to the next phase of my life. This isn't happening. I did what I did and now I'm able to to kind of take on whatever challenge lies ahead.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, at that point I was in, I felt a little bit of both, you know, I was kind of relieved a little bit because I did need a, I needed a break from the game. I need to step away from it for a little bit because I just been getting beat up physically and mentally for, you know, six years now. And uh, so I, so I wanted to step away anyway, but once I did, um, I didn't really know who I was at that point. You know, I, I, all I had been my whole life was, was a football player. Uh, and that's, you know, That's, you know, what I what I did. I woke up every day and I trained and I, you know, got ready for the season or got ready for a game or had practice. My my schedule was so structured my whole life that now I'm not on a roster and I don't even know what to do with myself. You know, I'm just sitting, you know, I was living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the time. I just wake up and I'm like, what am I supposed to do all day? You know I mean? I like I I don't I didn't know what to do with myself. So so that got pretty tough um, uh, for a year or so. But then luckily for me, my uh, first son was born. Uh, in 2005. So that, that really kind of gave me purpose again. You know, I'm like, okay, here we go. I, now I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm a, I'm a father now. So I got something that I can wake up every day, I can look forward to um and that's that's what i'm going to be at that point is trying to be the best father i can be but uh you know there's um there's a lot of guys that i've played with who who really have a tough time with that transition out of the nfl you know once you make it to that level and you and you play there for a few years and you know you make a career out of it and you've um you, you're, you're established in the league and then it's taken away from you it's really tough finding out kind of what direction you want to go in with your life at that point. So a lot of my friends and former teammates have have struggled with that issue. And um, it's, uh, I went through it myself personally. I know, I know how tough it can be. Anybody reach out to
0: you saying, Hey, Tim, we'd love to bring you in as a Hail Mary specialist, because man, you throw one (laughs) hell of a Hail Mary, man. It's that's on the money every time.
2: Yeah, I had, had a little success with that. Uh, somebody told me the other day that I, uh, I'm i the only quarterback in NFL history to have two game-winning touchdown passes of 50 yards or more with no time left on the clock. And I didn't even wow. know that. But, um, uh, but yeah, I got my my first win ever in the NFL uh, was on a Hail Mary against the New Orleans Saints. Um, and, uh, you know, th- obviously I thought, well, that's never going to happen again. That's kind of the one for my career. And then the year we went to the playoffs, it was actually um, – we really had to have that win. You know, we were at Jacksonville. And we were down, um, you know, I can't remember, four, five, six points there. Uh, I think we were down six. And, um, you know, time was running down. We didn't have any timeouts. And um, we had to throw one to the end zone. And we were, you know, probably on the 45-yard line or something like that. And uh, chunked one up. And Quincy Morgan made an unbelievable catch in the end zone. You know, if we don't make that – we don't win that game, we don't go to the playoffs that year. Um, You know, so it was a huge game for us uh, at that point. So that one actually felt – Really good because it missed something. The one my rookie year just felt good because we hadn't won a game yet, and but we weren't going anywhere. I think we only won two or three games that year. But the w- the one in Jacksonville felt really good because it was so meaningful for our team. And they even said on the call, is it going to be New Orleans again? I went back and it watched actually, that this morning. It was, it was the, the same announcers. Yeah, the same announcers that were calling the New Orleans game were calling the Jacksonville game. So that's what, yeah, they said, is it New Orleans all over again? And sure enough, yeah, he caught it. It was crazy was Right on
0: the money. Uh, before I let you go, I want to get you out with some rapid fire. Just five questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. I've been wanting to ask this question for the last half hour.
2: Uh, how much weight are you putting up on the bench these days? Uh, not, not as much as you would think. I don't really go heavy um, just because my shoulder issues. So I, I'm more kind of reps, you know, than, than I focus. I'm focused on more higher reps than I do on weights just because of my injuries. Hypertrophy makes sense. Yeah. This stage in life. Uh, Biggest regret of your career was what? Um, Not staying healthy and you know, because I I did all the work that I possibly could have done to be the best player I could be. So I don't have any regrets looking back on that. It just would have been uh, that I could have stayed healthy and been a little more consistent throughout my career.
0: Kentucky native go to bourbon is what?
2: You know, what's crazy is I'm actually not a bourbon drinker. And I don't know, I, I feel like I'm very non-Kentuckian because I say that, but I'm more of a, a wine and tequila, vodka guy, but I'm not a bourbon drinker. My brother's a big bourbon drinker and he loves all the pappies and, you know, all those uh, those high-end bourbons. So uh, I, I've never really gotten into them somehow. I don't, I don't even know. And I'm, I'm actually on a bourbon bottle. Maker's Mark put me on a bourbon bottle one time. And um, so I got to design my own bottle and everything, which is really cool, uh, but but I don't even drink it. I, I think I have it. Uh, maybe so. No, I don't have it in here, but uh, it actually turned out to be a pretty cool bottle. That's
0: that's like the coolest thing ever. Then you just say to yourself, "Nah, you know what? I can't really drink this. I'm just going to keep this as a souvenir."
2: Yeah, they, uh, they did like a limited edition um, uh, thing where it's uh, you they know, do it for a fundraiser. And I got to donate all the money to the uh, Gilhart Institute um, here in here in Kentucky. So they've done those bottles with Coach Cal and Coach Stoops and Joe B. Hall and some people like that. So they did one with me and I think it was maybe 2012, 13, 14, somewhere around in that uh, that area I got to do it. But I got to be in on the design of the bottle, which was really neat um, and go through that process with them. So it was, it was a really cool experience and we made all the rounds of signing the bottles and um, you had a big turnout for those and they sold out really quickly. So it was, uh, we raised a bunch of money in that situation. Well, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. What will Kentucky's record be in
2: 2022? I'm going to say, I'm going to, say they have a 10 win regular season and, um, I really think it's going to be a big year for them. I do. I, they're they're very young in some spots. They got some young wide receivers that are going to have to step up. Uh, but they're very experienced in other spots. You know, the defensive side of the ball is one of the deepest linebacking cores, maybe in the SEC. Uh, the secondary should be really good. The D line should be really good. And obviously, we got a quarterback who's you know projected to be a top ten pick in the draft. So anytime you got a guy like that at quarterback. Your chances to win a lot of games go 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 up, uh, you know, significantly. So I uh, I'm going to say it's you know they've won ten games, what uh, two out of the last four seasons. So I'm going to say this is going to be another ten win season for them.
0: Last one. I'll give you an option here you could either answer the question that it's on the minds of everybody these days, is Kentucky a football school or a basketball school? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I knew that was coming up. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a, that was a hot topic around here for a while. You know, I, I honestly, in my, my honest opinion, I think it's a, it's an everything school. You know, if you look at, you know, where our football program is now, and obviously basketball speaks for itself in the history there, but look at our track and field program and some of the people we've had here the last few years um, it's, uh, you know, some of the girl track athletes are you know, Abby Steiner is here right now and just, uh, you know, a, a record breaking athlete. And, and it's just it's, it's just phenomenal. Some of the uh, athletes they have over there. Right now So Mitch Barnhart, our athletic director, has done a tremendous job building up all programs uh, and at, at the university. So I, I'm going to say it's an everything school right now. Cal should have
0: just said that he should have just copied and know, been like, right. all right, Tim, yeah. bring, bring, bring everything's
2: school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then
0: last, last one, uh, when Joe Burrow broke your record passing mm-hmm. yard, single season sec record, uh, what was your reaction to that?
2: Uh, my initial reaction was, "Damn! I didn't realize it lasted twenty some years." You know, there's been, you know, there's been some amazing players over the last twenty years. You took thinking Cam Newtons and Tim Tebow's and you know Johnny Manziel's and all these guys that had such great careers in the SEC over the last twenty years, and no one broke that. And uh, so, so I was really proud that it lasted that long. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if anybody was going to break it, it's, uh, I was glad it was Joe. I'm, I'm a huge Joe Burrow fan. I think he's, I, I think he's one of the top two or three quarterbacks in the NFL already. And I think he's going to have an unbelievable, uh, hall of fame type career at, as long as he can stay healthy and the Bengals keep, uh, you know, keep putting that talent around him like they have so far. Just sent
0: him that bottle of bourbon.
2: It's like a classy, like, really
0: well. Yeah. uh, Tim, this has been awesome. Really, really appreciate the time. We'll have to do this again, man.
2: Absolutely, man. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it.
0: We were originally going to do Bold and Brash. Then I saw Will's post in the Saturday Night South podcast Facebook group, which you should totally join. And he said, if you haven't watched the Manti Teo doc on Netflix, you totally should. I was halfway through it at that point, watched the rest of it last night. So I figured very relevant. Let's talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you haven't watched it yet, Go watch it. Highly recommend. We're not going to spoil anything other than Renaya, who is the catfish has gone through a bit of a physical transformation. That certainly took me by surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, Will, what was your, your biggest takeaway from this? Because
1: I had a lot. So they just shadow banned Brian Kelly. Huh? (laughs) I was wondering about that. I don't know
0: how much he would have added to that. And Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame athletic director is the predominant Notre Dame source mm-hmm. in this. I don't know that Brian, I, I have no idea what the background was. If Brian Kelly was offered to be in this. I imagine he was, I don't know if he just said, you know what? I'm, the timing of it too, I think they they probably shot a lot of this in the winter based on the background and you see snow like at Notre Dame and all that stuff too. So Look maybe at he's this like guy. director Al-S2. of photography, Carter O'Gara. He, you know, I'm teaching you something here. Piecing things together. That that would be my best guess is that he's mm-hmm. just like, do I want to go back down that road? I'm not at Notre Dame anymore. How do like? I don't know. Brian Kelly would not have probably come off very well in this but yeah he was the only time you actually see brian kelly's in like post-game press conference that one yes. time and you see how different his hair is compared which is just 10 years ago crazy to think about but yeah brian kelly uh very 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 minor part
1: of this doc but yeah as far as the overall doc i mean it's like I came away feeling really bad, obviously. And I think that, you know, Manti just is like a a very sweet golden retriever boy who's just kind of trying to do the right thing. And I think at the time we all made Thousands of jokes. I mean, that was the beginning of meme culture. That was the beginning of, you know, the impact fought. Well, I'm sitting next to Matt Tateo's girlfriend, all that type of stuff. And the way the story, and Jack Sorbick, like hit it on the head, it's like you can't explain this story in a way that is less than that documentary. You need to invest two hours into this story and fully understand everything that happened for it to make sense. Because if you get 75% of it, Manti looks even more insane than he actually is because like, you know, they were talking about, he hit up what by the end of it, 10 or 12 people who were all like, yeah, it's a real person. I talked to that person on the phone, right? That was,
0: yeah. that was crazy. The fact that he reached out to so many other people. Hey, do you, do you know, uh, Linnae, have you ever talked with her or something like that? And they'd be like, Oh yeah. Cause she you know, the the Facebook profile had already been created and she had reached out to specific people mm-hmm. and it's just, it is kind of strange. You do need that full context. And I don't even think to be 100% honest with you that the Deadspin story gives it 100% context. And I remember reading that at the time, still mm-hmm. having so many questions. And that's why there was a bit of this circus. And I remember right afterwards, it was, well, is surely then Manti, like maybe he, he made this up and this was all him trying to build himself up and build this, this narrative up. And I'm like, at the time you think maybe that kind of makes sense because Manti was in this almost Tebow like mm-hmm. narrative that senior year, that one year, not, not to, not the duration of his career, but it built to that point. And it kind of culminated with this unbelievable senior year where, you know, his grandma and his, fake girlfriend die on the same day. And so mm-hmm. you kind of watch this and you're like, wait a minute. Do you really think that that guy would bring that upon himself? Like, mm-hmm. because I think for a lot of us, we look back and we say, well, how could you be so naive as to get catfished? We have the context of now in the context of 2012. I don't know that I would have been able to tell you what catfishing was. I don't. Right. I I, I really like that. That term itself was still kind of in its infancy and I feel bad for Manti because I agree with you. I, I honestly don't think he had a clue. If this was something where you just got busted and you were trying to make up this person and then and then kill them off in some weird way, first of all, that's like a sociopath move. I don't know. Like, that's not the move of somebody who's as disciplined and as locked in on all things football as Manti Teo. And so, for this to come out the way that it did, it kind of took the perfect storm. And going back down that, that like memory, memory lane, I remember at the time, because I was living, I was living with my parents in the suburbs of Chicago, and Notre Dame that year was everything,
2: Mm -hmm. everything.
0: And when this came out, I remember very specifically, it was, probably two weeks before I left for Nebraska or something like that. And I remember having a conversation with my entire family at the kitchen table discussing this because it was that big of a deal, which we don't typically do for a sports story or whatnot. And you look back on it you're like, why do I care so much? Why why do we care about the girlfriend of a high profile athlete? We care because of what the story became, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's the thing that, the timing was really interesting. The fact that it was right around the, the tiger Lance Armstrong messes and the way that those things kind of played out and tigers a little bit before that, but you Mm -hmm. know, this, this rise and fall that was just very much of public consumption. Um, But yeah, it was, I, I had a lot of takeaways watching this man. It, It is fascinating. If you just think this is as simple as, A tiny little catfishing story. And this is just a naive athlete who fell for somebody who reached out to him on social media. It's kind of
1: a lot more than that. And it's also kind of not, I don't know. Yeah, it was the kind of cross-section of a lot of things in that, like, one of the most fascinating things to me in American history has been kind of the transition to the digital age, whereas, you know, in the even mid-2000s, being on a computer, having relationships like that was really frowned upon, right? Whereas, like, now we have lots of friends on Twitter. We have lots of friends on social media. It's part of our lives that we spend a lot of our day tweeting or talking into this void to people that may or may not be real. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, Fopolini, for instance, just random characters that are online were such a new thing uh back then and so it was a lot easier easier to otherize Manti Teo so let me like come back around to that for a second that showed you know the peak of what ESPN used to be man talking about the Tebow story as you did where that guy was every day every day every day Manti Teo was every day every day every day and you know as tough as it is You know, we don't, they don't have that much of a pull. There's not a monolith of journalism anymore in the way that ESPN pushed the story and pushed the story and pushed the story to the point where everybody was aware of it because they, it was like a Disney's type story. It was something that was perfect for them (laughs) as far as you know, his life, he was this devout, you know, Mormon, which I didn't even really understand at the time how being a Mormon at Notre Dame was almost being like, it was more different than being a Mormon at a regular school. I, I, in my mind, I was like, not religious, close enough, whatever. But that was another culture shock. So you have this guy who is this, you know, like movie character who's like Gaston and he's just like great at football. And then he has this tragedy. And so then the downfall comes, everybody likes being a hater, right? You know, I'm guilty of it myself sometimes, too. We like judging people. But it was an event that we, as the American populace, could never imagine happening to ourselves. Right. Because so many people were admitting to themselves that they were doing online dating. Even The people back then that were doing online dating, and I was like in college or high school, I wasn't doing it. But it was low-key. Like, my sister did that and talked about how ashamed of it she was at the time. So, it was like, oh, this could never happen to me, so let me jump on this guy.
0: I'm... Usually pro-journalism. <laughs> yeah. I defend it very often. And, and mm-hmm. I, I do think that that's been in and, and the work that they did to report on this story. A lot of it was, I, I think, impressive to get to the bottom of it the way that they did. But I did hate their side of this. I did. Their entire deal. You talk about the peak of ESPN. Mm-hmm. Their entire deal was to try and make ESPN and major news outlets who covered this story, Sports Illustrated, who blew this story up, they wanted to make them look bad. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to tell a story or to mm-hmm. inform. It was to try and say, hey, you suck, you're an idiot, you fell for this. They blasted ESPN and Sports Illustrated for not verifying that Linnae existed. I'm gonna be honest here. I don't think a lot of people would be willing to say this. That thought would never cross my mind as a journalist. If I was going to do a story on Bryce Young, for example, and he's like, yeah, I found out today that my girlfriend died, my natural instinct, even as a reporter, even as somebody who's like curious and wants to look at all angles of this stuff, I wouldn't say, hmm, I wonder if she actually exists.
1: Can I say that death certificate real quick? Sorry, before I like go into grieving with you, can we just verify date of birth? Right. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if somebody says, yeah. And
0: it, when it gets to that point, you're kind of going to respect their privacy as well. Right. We can sit here and say that all of them should, everybody in journalism should do their due diligence, due diligence when it comes to writing about specific people. But the story wasn't about Linnae. It was about mm-hmm. Manti, who very much did exist- and was telling the world about his long-distance relationship. I didn't know a thing about Manti Teo's love life until we found out about Lene and his grandma dying on the same day. I would have never been like, you know what I should do right now? I l- Let me search for all the funeral information. Let me search every California fun- funeral home like Deadspin did and try and find a eulogy, which as Deadspin even admitted, you literally couldn't search for a eulogy because everything with lanae's name was related to her death and how Manti was dealing with that so that part of it just didn't really sit well with me that their entire motivation for this was to try and be like see they didn't look at they they had poor journalism and they really fell for this trap mm-hmm. it's like i don't i don't know how how we in the, in the public consumption could have avoided something like this But it took the perfect storm for this to reach the levels that it did, right? Like, do I get why it became a huge story? Absolutely. The intertwining of catfishing, sports, uh, sexuality, celebrity, like it is all there. But I actually kind of came away from this hating deadspin even more than I already do, because I don't think their motives are in the right place at
1: all. Also, this is the, the question I kept coming back to. Wait, Hold on really quick on the deadspin thing. Cause I actually wanted to ask you this question. This was like something you were the first person I thought of. So, and this is why I love watching this stuff with Brittany. Cause she'll ask like thousands of questions that I would just never think of. So whenever deadspin, um, I forgot if it was Timothy Burke or, or the other guy that were talking about it, but yeah. they were like, well, it's our duty to inform the public. And since he's now going to be a professional athlete, people need to know what they're drafting. And as you say that, I think that you're probably right. Their motive wasn't that. Their motive was probably just to embarrass ESPN. But you as a journalist, like, let's say you're sitting on this story and you're in Deadspin's position. I mean, how do you reconcile that? Because you know it's going to ruin this guy's life. But is this something the public needs to know? Or, like, how do you approach this sensitive style of this information?
0: They talked about whether or not they were going to go to air with this story based on whether or not somebody else was going to get to it first. Right. So the usual, and they admitted they didn't even have all the details, mm-hmm. which that's the part that is is kind of tough because I get it. When you get a story, when you get a tip like that, that is that significant and you say to yourself, oh my God, we're on to something massive. And nobody would have ever, ever told Woodward and Bernstein, hey, why don't you guys like... <laughs> You know, I know you got all this work and all these sources. Actually, I take that back. Everybody was telling them that go watch All the Presidents Men, unbelievable mm-hmm. movie. If you were in that spot with Deadspin and you said what is important and what is not, it's about what you have at that point, right? So at that point, you're going to go. You're going to go with that story. You're going to print that. You know that everybody and their mother is going to click on a story that says Manti Teo's dead girlfriend was a hoax. I still remember reading that dead spin story. It was one of the very few times where you're kind of just like mouth open. Oh my God, how is this possibly real? Which shows you how big of a personality he had become and why everything he does at that point becomes public interest, right? Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, and just from a basic ethics standpoint, I get it when you're already there. Mm -hmm. I'm saying more so on the premise of digging into it. And getting to that place because yeah, it does create interest. Maybe I'm answering my own question by saying this, and this is a bad example. But I would not have probably had the the thirst to dig into it the way that they did. Or if I did, maybe it would have been at the end of this research. Manti, here's what we have, and apparently he like he said when he was at the Heisman ceremony, he knew something something had was up. He knew that. He had been duped in some way, shape, or form, but wasn't sure of all the details yet. Mm-hmm. So that's a really difficult way to answer this question because it is a huge ethics dilemma because it gets back to the original question. Why do we care? Right. You know, why? I, I don't care. If I found out that that my favorite player in a sport had a girlfriend and then they broke up, would I spend more than three seconds thinking about it? No when russell wilson got divorced and he was with the seahawks and there was all this stuff about the future's baby we're not the seahawks like released a statement i'm thinking to myself what what do you why who cares why do we care about this but with mm-hmm. manti teo and the way that it was built up and the way that this this whole process played out with notre dame this savior right that cuz that's such a key part of that. that's why you need to watch the doc to understand the context of this and what he had become and why his his aura had kind of felt like, well, everything he does is newsworthy. But at the same time, I just thought some of the ethics behind of why they dug into this the way that they did was just kind of of backwards from a motive standpoint. I don't know if that answers your question at all.
1: Yes. And, and, you know, as we talk about this, it, it makes me realize, you know, Manti was almost not even an active participant in this. He was being used as a vessel, right? As like a conduit. So ESPN and like kind of the narrative builders over there. And to be clear, to your point, they did everything right because they had no reason to doubt this story, like in terms of ESPN. Um, but they saw this inspirational story that they could use to more or less get ratings, like not to make it bad, but it's like, that's that's how sure. the, they view things. They want people to tune in. And then at the, and he worked for that, right? Then at the same time, Deadspin used him as a vessel to get Back at those people. ESPN, yes. Sports Illustrated, all those people. So the concept of him being, you know, at the time we couldn't have imagined him not being a participant or that's why it was so like, is he doing this himself? Is he doing all this stuff? As I hear him talk about it and I hear Deadspin talk about their motives also, it's like, this guy was really just kind of a bystander to Renaya and his personal, you know, issues he had going on at the time and um, and all of these different forces. And he was really just a sweet boy who didn't know any better. And that just makes it even sadder. You know, it does. It it really does. I give the guy credit for being willing to talk about this and open
0: up Mm -hmm. old wounds and like watching some of this play out with him. Yeah. Naive at certain points, but all the different verification that they did. And in today's day and age, you would say, okay, well you have to FaceTime. If you're not willing to FaceTime with me, you're not a real person. We'd pretty much open and shut. This is still 2011. When when this entire 2012, when this relationship is kind of getting going, right? And so like we're we're in a different place. We we just were, and understanding who he was and his, he had a little bit of this. Well, I want to help out everybody, mm-hmm. right? I want to I want to make sure that I'm that I'm doing the right thing. And you know, th- there's a certain part of this too, where you could say, well, why do you want to be in a relationship like that if you can ever see her physically be there. You kind of get the context of who he was growing up. And I think his parent, like his dad had the quote about how locked in he was to football and his relationships during football season, whoever he dated or whoever he was with, they kind of knew, all right, during football season, that's his entire mindset. So if you're Manti Taylor, you're thinking to yourself, well, I've got a relationship that I can, I can talk to her on the phone. We can text Mm exchange Facebook messages, whatever. And I don't necessarily have to worry about seeing her all the time. Oh, she wants to come in town and do this. She wants to come in town and do that. You kind of get that that emotional support. So from that standpoint, I kind of understand it. It was the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. All of this was the perfect storm. How did the girl whose image was being used not see all of these photos and be wondering, Why are my photos everywhere? Because it's not just an it wasn't just an ESPN
1: story, right? Right. That's dude. That's what I said. It's like, at what level do you not have you not turned on a news channel for what a year and a half? Like, what? How she could have broke like ruined this whole narrative in three seconds. you are like, Hey, that's me. <laughs> the,
0: anything, anything. Somebody turns on ABC. Good morning, America, because they were talking about Manti Teo then too, right? This mm-hmm. isn't just sports Illustrated. This isn't just ESPN. This is, this is pop culture. This is, mm-hmm. he became such a big part. And also Heisman narrative driven award. He yep. get him getting more votes than any defensive only player ever. Mm. Great season. Incredible season. <laughs> Look, you can't tell me that wasn't a part of it. Okay. Like that's definitely a thing, but how, like all of these things had to happen. And we, we are reminded watching this, the dangers of one, assuming that a 21 year old kid is perfect mm-hmm. because everybody has flaws. We just do. And it's a dangerous thing to get to that place where you assume that somebody doesn't mm-hmm. Two, a 21 year old kid going through that stuff has just got to suck. And if you can't feel some sort of sympathy for him, I don't mean to get too preachy here, but if you can't feel some sort of sympathy for them and you just want to watch this and just continue to like make jokes about them, I don't know. That's a you thing. I'd have a really tough time doing that, seeing the way that it impacted him. Yes, it definitely impacted him. Two things can be true at the same time. One is that if Notre Dame had an entire defense of Manti Teos, they weren't going to beat Alabama in the national championship. <laughs> I was glad to hear Manti Teos say that, that.
1: Oh, bro. And they tried to paint it that way, too. I thought that was a little bit messed up. It's like, no, they he scored squashed 14 that points. Though. He no, he did. That. He did. But every other piece of content in that documentary was very like, oh, well, you know, who's to say? It's like, again, they scored 14 points. It was 42-14. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, like, come on, bro. <laughs> he,
0: he said, we just ran into a really good Alabama
1: team. It wasn't a fact,
0: but they showed missing two tackles in that game. It's like, I, I, those two tackles didn't allow 29 points, okay? That's, I will uh,
1: say, though, one thing that they may have convinced me on as much is because I'm a sucker, I don't really remember his draft free fall that much. In my mind, I, I was either. like, uh, okay, good. So we're on the same page there. And, like, I mean, he ended up playing for the Saints, too, obviously. Play for the Bears, like, too, yeah. Yeah, like that's actually kind of funny, but point being like, you know, I don't really remember that free fall. I remember kind of like looking it up as I often do with the draft of the day two and three guys. Yeah, he went high enough. Like that probably makes sense. They would San Diego, you know, big like Polynesian community. Like that was a good fit for him or whatever. But when he started talking about how he was just numb and frozen in those games, I was like, yes, huh. You know, like maybe not to say he could be Ray Lewis, but the fact that he's out of the NFL now, considering what a blue chip, I mean, recruit player prospect it's like maybe that really did hurt i mean because 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 like take out like you know the people were like oh could he be gay whatever not about that but the one guy made an interesting point that if you're a middle linebacker the quarterback of the defense and you have to stand up in front of everyone and give them orders and have them be you know believe in you and you know when stuff starts going slightly sideways you know dudes dudes are gonna be like okay this guy didn't know if his girlfriend was real so can i really take him seriously and that sucks like not to be mean but that's how those guys think I thought about that a lot while watching this
0: because I did not fully realize just his NFL career, what just was not anything special. He's not going to call the bus because he wasn't a first round pick. Right. But I absolutely agree that that, how could that not impact you? And, and I was more of the impression going into this, wouldn't that actually be the perfect outlet for you? You can kind of take your anger out on people, legally hit them. But playing middle linebacker isn't about just dropping the hammer. It's instincts. It's confidence. Mm-hmm. If you lack either of those things, forget about it. And he clearly did. How could you not going through that and realizing every time I miss a tackle, I'm going to get ripped or, you know, a- anything that happens to me in a negative way, he's going to have to be reminded of it. He talked about walking into the cafeteria after he was at the the training facility and, guys are talking guys are talking and then he walks in it just goes quiet Mm -hmm. that's the elephant in the room anytime he's there and that sucks it Mm -hmm. sucks and that's not to say that he he couldn't have done things a little bit differently obviously but at the same time it was the perfect storm to get to what that story ultimately became it's too bad because that's a that's a no-win situation Okay. Like mm. Deadspin is going to pretend to be like the winners in this entire thing. Tell me the last time you looked at Deadspin, person listening to this podcast. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great, I mean, if you think about the Mantis Teo put them up on the mountain and the Hulk Hogan story knocked them off of the mountain, they're in a way kind of similar. It's getting into someone's personal life without their consent. And Hulk Hogan just happened to be, you know, lawyered up and able to fight back. Um, not that Peter Thiel is a good guy. It's, Peter Thiel stinks, but just just getting that out there that, you know, you play with fire, you get burned.
0: Yeah, but a really interesting story, and uh, I wondered about a lot of the different elements of this, how it would be treated. I always love the how would we consider this now versus how would we talk about this then. Is it any different, the sliding doors of whether or not Manti Teo wins the Heisman instead of Johnny Manziel? I don't know that that changes a whole lot of their trajectories either way because Johnny's, Johnny's uh, his entire life changed the night that he did that to Alabama. But right, nonetheless, right. it was really interesting kind of going back down to – Going back down to, to that story, and, and I, I, of course, am watching this and clicking on a bunch of different things and figuring out, wait a minute, did, did, did I remember Notre Dame winning all these games by a touchdown or something? And how many mm-hmm. interceptions did he have that year? And what were his numbers again? So, yeah, just crazy,
1: crazy, crazy. Good stuff, though. Can't recommend it enough. Really interesting. Yeah. You, know, you you know, what was like a Swar- the guy, Jack swore What's the AD? Jack Swarovic. I, I love that they interviewed him and he was like, well, you know, many would consider Notre Dame the finest, you know, football institution in America, and I, I immediately just went, one person wouldn't, and that was the, you know, that was the vibe of me watching this documentary. It was the ability to dump on Notre Dame from ten years ago. It was re reinvigorated in me. It was a great time. They showed the highlights of Notre Dame back when it was good. When
0: throwing a forward pass was an incredible accomplishment. Patty and, roosevelt uh, was tearing it up for them let me tell you <laughs> he was he was different times different times
1: okay uh let's close with lad of the week mm-hmm. do you have one i won't yes i have i'll, I'll do mine quickly mine is uh george rr R. martin um you know who he is connor george rr R. martin no i do yes. not but that's a heck of a name yes well he's the creator of game of thrones um he is he uh, right. House of the Dragon is the new kind of reboot that they're doing not to get into the fantasy, you know, aspect of it. I know it's not for everybody, but it's obviously going to be the biggest show. The um, last Sunday episode one premiered. It's very graphic. Definitely don't watch it with your kids. There's a lot of wild stuff you've never seen on television in that show. Um, but point being, the re- reason why he's loud of the week is, you know, this guy was the victim of an all time. Bag fumble, right? And the last two seasons of Game of Thrones are the example of having a a, a literal just walk in touchdown and just fumbling it as you go in. Keishawn Booty, Keishawn Booty, twenty twenty, yes. Bama, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Booty. Sorry, yes, and that's gonna take me a minute. Um, but yeah, point being. You know, the the showrunners were unabashedly trying to, you know, audition for the Star Wars project. They ended up getting, you know, canceled from, or they they got fired from it, basically. So they just put Game of Thrones in the back burner, ruined what would have been the greatest television show of all time. But how did J.R.R. Uh, R. R. Martin respond? Um, first off, he put out a video game, uh, Elden Ring, which became the best-selling video game um in America for the last year. Uh, it was off of kind of like the... Um, i oh, like another series of games and everyone was blown away by that, blown away by the story. It was a really great game, very hard. Um, but he then rebounded with, you know, a sequel to game of Thrones to go ahead and show that, you know, it wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't just a, you know, uh, Scott Frost, 2017 UCF. He is, he's the guy. And instead of getting sad, instead of focusing on his legacy, got right back to work, you know what I'm saying? Got right back to work, put his hand in the dirt and put, put out more classics. So week, George RR.
0: Good selection. I probably should have known who that was, and I'm going to get a lot of crap for not knowing who that was. That's okay.
1: It's a very, it, I'm not, I won't say it's a niche, but it's a very It's a very different audience to the college football audience, for sure. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I'm going with a ladette of the week. Our first ladette
0: of the week, our good friend Alyssa Lang. Mm-hmm. Alyssa became the first woman to ever host a TV version of The Paul Feinbaum Show. I think Laura Rutledge hosted a radio only version, but Alyssa did the simulcast. Absolutely crushed it. There are a lot of people who watch that show who might say a woman shouldn't be talking about football. To those people, I say kick rocks. Mm -hmm. Melissa is one of the best in the business of any gender. And we know that based on her powerlifting numbers, she could probably outlift most of the people that are saying that about her. So not the best look on them either. You know, you see all the comments and stuff like that. But shout out to Alyssa for breaking down some barriers. She's awesome. Loved seeing her get that shine early in the week. She works extremely hard. She's going to be on the sideline for a bunch of games. We'll have her back on the pod real soon. Our first Ladette of the week. Mm Got to make that a thing. Can't just... It's, lads it's 2022 and lads and yeah. ladettes that's what it's, it's all inclusive about. all right it is a little housekeeping we will record a preview pod on tuesday that will come out next wednesday that means you won't have a pod on tuesday morning but you will get the full preview pod on wednesday and then we're getting into season mode it's here mm-hmm. it is awesome it is here we'll be doing our post our, our post weekend pods on sunday morning i guess that's what we'll call them yeah our, mm-hmm. our post game pods on sunday morning we'll hopefully have those out usually by early sunday afternoon during the regular season and then we'll be recording on wednesday that will come out during thursday for the preview pods that run during this season if you have not this five-star review subscribe join the facebook group here named red on air with figuring out or bold and brash thanks guys talk soon